Support for WRFA is brought to you in part by listeners like you, who believe in the vital public service WRFA provides through its arts and education programming, as well as through our coverage of local news and public affairs. Plus, your generous support lets us provide a number of volunteer-based programs to be shared on our airwaves. Help keep community radio in Jamestown and Chautauqua County alive by making a contribution today. To make a tax-deductible donation or learn more about becoming a station underwriter, use the donate page on our website, wrfalp.com, or send a check to WRFA Radio, 116 East 3rd Street, Jamestown, New York. Or you can call 716-664-2465. State Assemblyman Andy Cadell shares with us his thoughts on Governor Kathy Hochul's proposed state budget. Assemblyman Andy Cadell is joining us today to talk about Governor Kathy Hochul's proposed 2025 state budget. Assemblyman, thank you for coming in today. And thank I want to thank you for bringing an audience for us today, even though they're outside the studio. I think it's wonderful to have little children looking in and seeing what Grandpa's doing. Yes, I'm uh, very, very fortunate um, both to be here, thank you so much, and to have with me two of my youngest, three of my youngest grandkids, uh, one's um, under one, and one's two, and one's three. And they are just outside the studio looking in, and they appear to be very interested in this discussion on where the state legislature is and what the governor's budget is doing. Well, I think it's fair that, you know, down the road, this will all affect them eventually uh, if they live in New York State. So talking about the governor's budget, Governor Kathy Hochul, she proposed a $233 billion budget on January 16th. Uh, I've Talked to State Senator Borrello, got his thoughts, and and, uh, have presented those to the public. Uh, But I'm wondering what you are thinking some of the highlights and lowlights are in this proposed budget as you've received it. Well, the highlight, and and I compliment the governor on uh, recognizing uh, what I think are the most serious issues facing New York State. And uh, I appreciate it when the governor and the legislature are on the same page in terms of what the major issues are. So the governor recognized that we have a serious issue with uh, lower level crimes like uh, shoplifting, uh, fair jumping you know, on the MTA, uh, and the general sense that there's just way too much crime going on in New York State and the data backs her. Uh, I appreciate the fact that she recognized the um, the need to address some of the mental health issues, which were, as you know, exacerbated during COVID when a lot of kids weren't able to go to school and there was a lot of pressure on families. Uh, she recognizes uh, that we have a real serious migrant problem um, with people who are not uh, legal immigrants and therefore can't work in New York State, but of course need to have housing and food and all the support services. Uh, She talked about the housing crisis, which has been sweeping New York State. And indeed, um, uh, that's gotten much, much worse uh, over the last few years with real housing shorts, especially in New York City, but but even here. So while she's focusing on public safety, housing crisis, uh, economic development, all of which I agree with in terms of her focus, I was very disappointed that neither in her state of the state nor in her budget message was Governor Hochul willing to look at the root causes of those issues. And that's where I was really disappointed. 
And so, for example, you may recall uh, three or four years ago, the Democrat majority, uh, with the support of the governor, eliminated, eliminated bail for over 400 crimes. And that meant for all those crimes, we had a catch and release policy. Yeah, my car was stolen in Albany, as you know. It took me longer to walk to work the next day than it did to process and release the person who stole my car. And that's just wrong. And then on top of that, you had the Manhattan DA on the first day he was in issue a memo saying, we're not even going to prosecute a whole list of crimes, including shoplifting, fair jumping, and a whole list of other lower-level crimes. Well, you might as well send out an engraved invitation to all the um, shoplifters and others when you say, hey, there's no bail, and even if you're arrested, we're not going to prosecute you. And so they saw an explosion in shoplifting and retail crime in New York City. Now, what was interesting is um, both... Speaker Hasey, the Democrat Speaker of the Assembly, and, the, and uh, Governor Hochul point out some positive numbers as it relates to crime. And they point out that uh, murders in New York State, uh, assault with a deadly weapon, um, burglary, robbery, all those crimes have gone down by double-digit percentages, which is very positive. What they didn't mention is that all the crimes that went down by double digits were crimes that still have bail. And the rest of the crimes that went up by double digits by over 20% are all the crimes that don't have any bail. Now, as you know, here in Chautauqua County, we have a lot of fishermen and a lot of sportsmen. And a lot of our fishermen have a policy of catch and release. They'll catch a fish, right? They enjoy the experience. They'll release the fish back in so they can catch it again. Well, that's a great policy when you're fishing and a horrific policy when you're dealing with criminals. And that's exactly what's been happening. So in their budget message, the governor proposed spending 30 or $40 million on a task force to address shoplifting, but made absolutely no mention that maybe the root cause is that we have a catch and release policy and in some parts of the state, thankfully not here in Stock County, but in New York City, they won't even prosecute shoplifting. Thankfully, in Chautauqua County, our police will still arrest shoplifters and our DA will still prosecute shoplifters. And so shoplifting in Chautauqua County is a small fraction of the problem compared to New York City. So you see that on every major issue, on housing, Four years ago, the Democrat majority took the eviction process that normally would have taken three weeks and made it three months long. And at the same time, they made it illegal to get more than one month of security deposit. Well, that means if you're a landlord and your tenant quits paying, you're going to lose at least two months' rent. And um, so it puts a tremendous financial pressure on landlords. Landlords respond by raising the rent. Because they have to raise the rent to cover that loss or that potential loss. Then the Democrat majority went two years with an eviction moratorium for everyone, regardless of your income, regardless of your ability to pay, everyone 
had a two-year eviction moratorium. Yet the landlords still had to pay their property taxes, still had to make the mortgage payments, still had to maintain the properties. And the net effect of those policies was to drive a lot of the small landlords out of business, completely out of business. And then last year, the Democrat majority eliminated one of the most effective tools in our toolbox for housing. It's a special tax credit for the construction of low-income housing. It's called 421A. As a result of those actions, the number of new housing permits in New York City dropped 85%. Now, the governor included you know, a lot of money in for housing. Um, she put in $650 million, which is a lot of money to encourage new housing, but never addressed the underlying causes. So this is like you know, buying expensive Band-Aids without dealing with the wound. You know, you gotta focus on the cause, the injury, and then you don't need to spend or waste money on uh, responding. And so on each issue, you know, the governor's put in an incredible amount of money to deal with migrants and illegal immigrants. An incredible amount of money. But never looked at the fact that New York State is still a sanctuary state. So going back just a few years, New York, uh, the Democrat majority, passed all the sanctuary state legislation. They took the criminal law and reduced the maximum sentence for a misdemeanor by one day so you wouldn't be deported even though you violate our laws, committed a crime, and were sentenced to the maximum sentence. Well, I, I don't understand the public policy purpose. We want to keep criminals in New York State? I mean, and that's what they did. Uh, they made it illegal for New York State law enforcement to cooperate with federal officials on immigration matters. They made it illegal. Of course, they gave driver's licenses to illegal immigrants, right? And then, like three years ago, they gave $2 billion of your money, $2 billion to illegal immigrants who are working illegally. It was a cash bonus. So then having given away billions of dollars to illegal immigrants and passing all the sanctuary state, they then throw up their hands and say, oh, why are these immigrants all coming to New York? Well, you invited them. You paid them to come here. And so the governor in this year's budget put $2.4 billion, billion to help the migrant crisis. And that's on top of the $1.9 billion that we spent last year and the $2 billion we gave away a few years before that. Massive amount of money. And then to put that in comparison, this year the governor's budget includes $577 million, $577 million for all of upstate highway transportation aid. Okay, so the governor is spending six times more money on unlawful immigrants than she's willing to spend on highway aid. And all of us here in Chautauqua County rely on that highway aid. So it's very frustrating to watch the state budget spend billions of dollars addressing problems that the state legislature, um, with a pretty strong opposition from my caucus, I might add, but you see that we're spending billions of dollars to address problems that the Democrat majority created 
without going back and fixing the underlying problems. So I applaud the governor on recognizing the problems. I'm disappointed that she doesn't recognize the cause of the problem and isn't willing to address the underlining causes. And as a result, in the end, New York taxpayers, including you and I and everyone else, are gonna end up spending literally billions of dollars with Band-Aids that aren't solving the problem, they're just addressing some of the worst effects of bad public policy. You know, and as a politician, I understand um, sometimes you think you got a great idea, you pass the legislation, it makes a lot of sense at the time. Well, just like a scientist who has a, a hypothesis that sounds good at the time, there's a second step, and the second step is, okay, was our hypothesis right? Was our good idea really good? And you gotta look at the actual results. And then the hardest part for both politicians and scientists, I suppose, is to say, well, maybe that theory wasn't what we thought it was. And then the hard part is to change course and try something new. And hopefully, the new idea has been tried somewhere else so you can look at the data and you can see how it actually works in practice and you can make an improvement. And it's a very slow process in government. And of course, Senator Brello and I and others are pushing very hard to try new ideas. And are you, I, I'm assuming it wasn't just for state Senate Republicans, but I saw that there was a Republican um, initiative that was announced, I think, last week as well, saying that okay, this is our goals as Republicans in the state legislature. Are you, and you're a part of this group too? Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, and I just, I, I had asked Senator Barella about it, but I thought, you know, what, what are some of the things that uh, Republicans are hoping to work on this this session and then we'll talk about what you want to work on as well but what are some of the sure. things that you're you like that are in the plan that for this session from the republicans well looking at what's really important to us here in chautauqua county and all of us um close to the top of the list of course is public safety we all want to live in a community where we feel comfortable where we're safe where our kids can be outside where we don't have to worry about someone breaking into our house or stealing our things or you know, uh, random drive-by shootings or things of that nature. And so, as a Republican conference, we have urged our colleagues to re-examine the catch-and-release bail policy and to reassert bail to make it easier for our district attorneys and our police to protect us and put criminals behind bars. So, on public safety, we're focused on what's worked for decades and saying, let's support our law enforcement, let's support our DAs, and let's go back to what we know works in making our communities safer. When it comes to um, um, the migrant issue, uh, Senator Brell and I have introduced a half dozen bills to say, look, it doesn't make sense to make it illegal to cooperate with law enforcement, with federal law enforcement. Let's welcome the legal immigrants. Let's make sure that even those who are here uh, pending their evaluation, they're here on asylum, let's make sure they're taken care of. But at the same time, let's make sure we're cooperating 
with the federal government so that if they shouldn't be here, if they don't qualify, they can be deported. Let's deport people who have been sentenced to the maximum Class A misdemeanor violation. They shouldn't be here. They have broken their social contract with us. And so let's welcome the legal immigrants. Let's focus on deporting the ones who shouldn't be here or who are criminals. Um, when it comes to um, the housing uh, crisis, our solution is really very fundamental, and that's saying the way you solve a housing crisis is you encourage more housing. And the way you encourage more housing is you make it easier for people to invest in the housing market, safer for them to invest in the housing market, and you look for public-private partnerships to increase the supply. And we all know from our daily experience that the cost of any product is a result of supply and demand, right? When there's a huge demand and a short supply, you get real high prices. The way you drive prices down is you increase the supply. And so the Republicans are saying, let's work with our landlords. Let's work with the private sector. Let's uh, look for creative solutions to increase the supply of housing. Then, of course, a lot of challenges for a lot of us dealing with the inflation we've seen in the last three or four years, right? So you want to uh, look and say, are there ways for government to reduce the cost of living? And there are. So all the time, my Democrat colleagues want to increase the cost on utility companies, for example. Um, with more regulations and more restrictions and higher wage requirements and things of that nature, all of which gets passed on to the homeowner. So when, uh, when you're looking at the environmental issues as it relates to the utilities, you'll see my colleagues are saying, oh, you gotta you know, stop using natural gas in your stove. Like if you don't have a natural gas stove that the world's global temperature is gonna drop or something, I mean, the, the numbers just don't add up, right? Or they're pushing very strongly for all electric school buses. They cost a fortune, and they have a very limited range when it's really cold out. All those drive up the cost of living in New York State. And so there's other states in the nation that are growing dramatically. What have they done? They've focused and how you can make their utility rates lower rather than imposing expensive requirements, how you make heating costs lower rather than the reverse. And in New York State, they've blocked every new natural gas supply pipeline, which tightens the supply and forces prices up for every one of us. Other states have reduced in their, their gas tax. Um, that's a direct cost right out of your pocket. Other states have looked at how to reduce your health care costs. Many people in New York State don't realize this, but New York State taxes your health care to the tune of over $5 billion a year. If you go into an emergency room, there's a special 9.8% tax, and it's special sales tax that's higher than anywhere else in the state on your health care. When you buy an insurance policy, there's a tax on the insurance policy, a gross receipts tax on the insurance company. All those costs get passed down to you as a resident and as a consumer. So the Republican caucus is always looking for how can we cut the cost of government, 
how can we cut all those hidden uh, taxes and fees so that it's more affordable to live here in New York State? And the stakes are huge. For three years in a row, New York State has led the entire nation in the total number of people net that have left the state, including this year. And uh, so whenever, when we're doing a budget discussion uh, with my colleagues, my Democrat colleagues, I always ask them, look, will your higher taxes encourage people to stay here? Will the fact that you didn't put a dime into repaying the huge unemployment expenses that we incurred during COVID, how's that helping employers who we need in order to have people to stay here? And that's our focus. How do we make New York State more affordable? How do we make New York State safer? How do we make New York State better for all the residents? And that's where Senator Brello and I are focused. One of the things uh, that came out just uh, yesterday, uh, well, actually, it came out Tuesday night, but I didn't uh, have it until this morning's news, uh, was about um, in the governor's proposed budget, she is proposing cutting financial or foundation aid to school districts across New York State, and she's doing this by rejiggering around the uh, the rate that they figure inflation costs and things like that. And when I was talking about this, I actually I don't think it was in my in the on record uh, interview that I did with County Executive Wendell, but he kind of made the offhand comment. And he says, "Well, this is one way that maybe it might." Put, he goes, "Theoretically, it could push some schools and maybe say, should we consolidate?" And is school consolidation something that the Republicans are looking at as a way to reduce costs for school districts and for municipalities in the state? Sure. So let me talk about two things, if I may. Um, I'll start with your question. The Republican caucus is always supportive of local control and giving the local school districts the ability and the tools to operate more efficiently. And so, as you know, for many years, Senator Young and I urged our legislature to authorize regional high schools where you would have a combined board of education with authority over the high school while still allowing the same school districts to exist with their individual elementary schools. And we recognize that when you have an elementary school, it's great to have an elementary school in your local community. And typically, you know, you have one or two classes of however many kids, and that works. It's reasonably efficient. You cut down on transportation expenses. The kids have a great educational experience. When you get to high school, however, you want to have a lot more electives. And when you're in high school, you want to have an opportunity for kids that want to pursue a technical career to go in one direction, kids who want to pursue an academic career to go in a separate direction. And you want those types of electives. And those electives are almost impossible to provide if you don't have enough critical mass. Now, that those proposals for regional high school were blocked, and then Ripley figured a way around it by tuitioning their students into Chautauqua. And certainly, that type of approach makes a lot of sense. Ripley saved an immense amount of money, and their students got a much higher educational opportunities um, because they had you know, that critical mass. So we continue to support that. 
with regard to the governor's budget. As you correctly note, a substantial portion of school aid comes through what's called foundation aid. And so you have two categories, roughly, of school aid. You have expense-based aid, so they reimburse you for transportation or books, or they reimburse you for capital expenses. And then you have foundation aid, which is your basic operating aid. And the foundation aid is a formula that takes into account the school district's wealth, uh, the number of students, and a number of other factors. We have always, up to this point in time, had a hold harmless provision in the foundation aid, which said that if, as a result of the formula, your school would see a reduction, we'll hold you harmless. You won't get an increase, but we'll hold you harmless. And that's really important because we have a tax cap. And if we didn't have a hold harmless, some schools would break their tax cap without increasing spending at all just because the state foundation aid dropped. This year's budget proposal from the governor for the first time in, I think, 20 years proposes eliminating the hold harmless. And for some school districts, it will result in a devastating reduction in foundation aid. Now, at the same time, the governor is increasing overall school aid, including foundation aid, by 2.4%. So you have overall pot growing, yet some schools just being nailed by the elimination of that hold harmless clause. Now, you might say, why would the governor ever do that? Well, what the governor is doing is shifting a lot of money away from the smaller rural schools into some of the urban schools. So while the governor is saying, oh, I'm increasing foundation aid by 2.4%, that statement's true. In reality, there's a massive shift that's occurring through the formula itself between school districts. Um, now, the Republican caucus had a press conference on this uh, just yesterday to highlight uh, those issues. Uh, that was very well attended. Uh, we heard from school superintendents who have seen you know, massive drops in foundation aid under this formula. Uh, I am fairly confident that the legislature will reinstate that hold harmless. And that's really important for several school districts in Chautauqua County and a top priority for us. And keep in mind, even if we reinstate the hold harmless provision, all school districts would then be either at zero or up because the overall amount of funding is increasing. The second issue, though, that's of great concern to our school districts, especially here in Chautauqua County, is the mandate for electric school buses. Those school buses cost two to three times more than a diesel school bus. And so you have diesel school buses powered by an engine made here in Chautauqua County at Cummins with state-of-the-art environmental and pollution controls, and it's illegal to buy it. And instead, you have to spend like two or three times more taxpayer money to buy an electric school bus. And a report came out just uh, within the last couple of weeks that showed that when the temperature is like zero degrees out, as we saw <laughs> this last week, right, when it was really cold, some of those school buses lose up to 80% of their range. Now, in a rural school district, like, you know, 
outside of Jamestown, and whether it's Bemis Point or Southwestern or Clymer or any of those school districts, those school bus runs can be quite long. We cannot spend three times more for a school bus that can't make the school run when it's cold. Just doesn't make sense. So that's a hidden cost that's going to start hitting the school budgets this year and next year and even more in the future. So the Republican caucus is saying, look, we need to be environmentally responsible, but we also have to be fiscally responsible. And right now, those school buses don't meet the fiscal responsibility. And for all school districts that get their electric power from coal, imported from Pennsylvania, for example, as we did here until just recently in Chautauqua County, an electric school bus that's recharged with coal electricity is not even environmentally friendly, ultimately. I mean, who wants to have a, a school bus that's actually powered by coal? And so, you know, we need to step back and say, look, it may look good. It's like a pretty package, but is it good? And we want to look at the environmental ramifications and the financial ramifications. And there's this really uncomfortable truth that many of my colleagues who support electric school buses don't want to acknowledge. And the uncomfortable truth is that the cobalt that goes into those batteries is mined in the Congo using horrific, horrific conditions involving child labor. I mean, we're talking about eight-year-old kids mining highly toxic cobalt with no safety equipment for hours on end, just this side of slave labor. I mean, it's just horrific. And then the batteries themselves are manufactured in China. And China has been adding like 68 coal power plants a year to power their industry to produce these clean, so-called clean batteries. Well, China accounts for 29% of greenhouse gas production in the entire world. New York State is four-tenths of 1%. So what we're doing is we're sending billions of New York State tax dollars to China so they can build more coal plants and produce more global warming so that we can pat ourselves on the back as we ride around in an electric school bus that's recharged with electricity that itself may be produced by coal or natural gas. Now, let's step back, take a look at the big picture, stop you know, doing this dance uh, about appearances and focus on the reality of how can we be best stewards of both the environment and uh, our finances. Thinking about, we were talking about where, you know, the batteries are coming and electric buses and that. I'm thinking, I went a step further in my brain and I thought, when it comes to our electric grid in New York State, has there been studies and they said that the electric grid in this state can't handle the load that is being proposed to be in place by whatever, 2035 or whatever it is? I mean, does, I mean, New York, well, I, I can't say, Jamestown has this, I mean, just a power plant, but we, it's made by natural gas. So, but I know there's another, I know Mayville has its own power plant. I don't know its capacity. It's very, mm -hmm. that's a small village. I'm like, but do these 
power plants, municipal power plants, or commercial, whatever they private are in the state, do they have the capacity to handle the electric load that is going to be demanded of them? And the answer is no. I mean, that's a simple answer. The answer is no, not just no, absolutely no. Not just no, absolutely no, not even close. So if you look at the total capacity of the New York State electric grid, the total amount of electricity that can be transported and is being produced, and then you look at the amount of electricity that would be needed if we had all electric vehicles, you would have to more than double, more than double the amount of electrical production and distribution. Now there's a group, an independent group called the Independent Service Operators, ISO. And the independent service operators produce an annual report on grid reliability. And two years ago, they pointed out that with New York City requiring um, residential buildings to convert to all electric, while at the same time shutting down the Indian Point nuclear power plant that produced 20 to 25% of their power, and at the same time shutting down the natural gas peaker plants that ramp up when they have high demand, they projected that they wouldn't meet minimum reliability standards within a couple of years. This is minimum reliability standards. So they issued that report. There's tremendous political um, backlash, uh, particularly led by the environmental groups. And so the next report they issued, they said, oh, you will meet reliability standards if Right? They, they should have put the if in great big capital letters. If all the projected green energy comes online on time, which isn't going to happen, a new power line is run from Quebec to New York City, which so far has been delayed six or eight years, and that's not going to come online. If there's no unusually hot or cold weather, And so, thankfully, here in Jamestown and here in Chautauqua County, um, we get a large amount of our power from Niagara Falls. And it's green energy, and it's reliable, and it's reasonably abundant, and our grid capacity is pretty good here in Chautauqua County. But New York City, they run a very real risk of a brownout or blackout. And what's amazing to me is it's not like this is new. Look at California, for God's sakes. I mean, California started banning all their coal plants, right? Shutting them down. They started banning all their natural gas plants and shutting them down. They had huge incentives for all electric vehicles. And what happened? Just this last summer, they had a heat wave and they told everyone who had electric cars they couldn't charge them until, until they were on the off hours. And they've had rolling blackouts in California now, off and on, for years. It's like, okay, so California has proven that you can be really stupid when it comes to your energy policy, so let's follow their lead. It's mind-boggling. Now, government tends to operate like a pendulum. They go too far in one direction, and then the public you know, expresses their outrage, and so the pendulum comes back, and we're starting to come back. And I'll give you a simple example. A couple of years ago, the state legislature 
while the pendulum was still swinging toward all electric vehicles, passed a law that required all New York State-owned vehicles to be all electric in a phase-in period over the next 10 years. The next year, they took out all the inter intermediate goals. Why? Because they couldn't make them. Then they passed another bill that said, oh, and by the way, all the all-electric vehicles that New York State has, has to buy have to be manufactured in the U.S., including the batteries. And when this bill came up for a vote, I asked what I thought was an obvious question. Are there any cars built in the United States that have a U.S.-built battery? And the answer was no. I said, so let me just make sure I understand this. You pass this bill saying we have to have all electric vehicles. Yeah. You eliminate all the intermediate goals. Yeah. And you require that they can only buy vehicles that aren't currently manufactured in the United States. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, each one of those bills have great political reasons to pass them, right? So the environmentalists loved the first bill that required a the conversion. They loved that. Yay! The second bill that eliminated all the, the intermediate goals was required by the administration that says there's, there's no way we can do that. And then all the U.S. Uh, unions uh, loved the last bill which said it has to be all U.S. built. They all cheer. And the net effect is New York State has virtually eliminated its own mandate for its own agencies to buy all electric vehicles. Listeners cannot see my reactions when, <laughs> to this because I, even though I knew the answers that you were posing and things that you were asking legislature, I, I think it's still surprising to me to hear that these are some of the things that are being passed or proposed and, and passing in, in, in Albany. I'm wondering, just so you know, because we, we all know there are rules that they're saying we have to meet these guidelines by certain years and certain time periods and just wondering how are we going to get there and do these mandates really mean nothing then in the end yeah and so as a republican this is the approach i take i start from the assumption that our residents and the voters are smart thoughtful conscienceless people and that as a group they are much smarter much more effective much more thoughtful than government. And my Democrat colleagues take the position that government is smarter than the voters. And, there's, and that government is like a, you know, a omnipotent parent and that the, all the residents and voters are like uh, misbehaving young kids. I don't buy that. And so when I go to Albany and I say, look, uh, I agree, we want to be environmentally responsible. How do we make it so that thoughtful, intelligent residents in New York State want to go that route? And the answer is, we focus on the cost of the EVs, we focus on the ability to repair them, we focus on the big picture, like how much uh, pollution is created when you build a windmill. And we step back and say, look, take a look at the big picture. Stop trying to posture. You know, stop trying to put on some theater and look at the real issues and how we get there. So instead of treating landlords as uh, greedy crooks, 
Let's recognize that we have a lot. We have thousands and thousands of thoughtful landlords. We need to make it easier for them to provide uh, lower-cost housing. We need to make it easier for people to install a high-efficiency gas furnace, for example, and replace something that's low-efficiency. And if you harness the power of the private sector and you treat people as their smart, thoughtful, intelligent individuals, you will end up with smart, thoughtful public policy. And you want to look at not just the appearance, but the reality, and not just for today, but for the next five or 10 years. And that's the focus we need. I kind of got us off topic of where I wanted to go with. I wanted to ask you. What <laughs> Sorry, some I probably your, contributed that. Well, no, that was I, I, I asked you the questions and you just <laughs> answered them. So I did want to find out what some of your goals were for this legislative session on your own, because I, I know there's always legislation you're working on or been as a co-sponsor. And I was kind of interested in what are some of the things you plan to work on over the next couple of months, aside from the budget, of course. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, budget is, is, is the elephant in the room, so to speak. Um, so, uh, Senator Brill and I have a whole package of bills uh, dealing with immigration reform, uh, eliminating the sanctuary state status, uh, making it lawful again for New York law enforcement to work with federal law enforcement, while at the same time, you know, encouraging lawful in- immigration, right? So, we have that packet. We have um, uh, legislation that I've introduced uh, and in the assembly. It's co-sponsored by Joe Giglio from Cattaraugus County and and George Brello sponsors it in the Senate that would reinstate bail with protections so that someone who doesn't have money isn't in effect jailed before trial simply because they don't have money. So we have checks and balances to make sure that the system operates smoothly. So we have an alternative bail proposal uh, to deal with that issue. Um, on the local level, we have several local bills that will really help us here in Chautauqua County, like authorizing some of our little town courts to merge together. And the towns have supported that. Or authorizing some of our town courts to have a peace officer uh, in their court for security reasons. Or authorizing um, Chautauqua Institution, for example, to have their private security force granted peace officer status so they can address with situations like uh, we saw last year. Um, so uh, we have a number of local bills that are all uh, in, in the hopper designed to make it easier and more efficient here in Chautauqua County and safer. So it's a combination of statewide bills um, dealing with the housing crisis, dealing with public safety, dealing with the cost of living here, and a number of uh, local bills. Of course, we were very, very pleased to see the governor include in her budget proposal funding specifically for the Jefferson Project, which is a scientific analysis of um, particularly harmful algae blooms in Chautauqua Lake. That's huge. We've gotten um, funding in the regular budget for the Chautauqua Lake Association and the Chautauqua Lake Partners. That's huge as well for our county. Um, I'd love absolutely love to see something happen with the Athenix building. We spent $200 million building a state-of-the-art facility, absolutely gorgeous building in Dunkirk, and it's been empty because the company that we're building it for it ran into serious issues. 
love to see that remarketed and filled with uh, employment. So those are the kinds of issues that we're focusing on. We'll be pushing strongly to try to get funding to offset the deficit that was incurred by local businesses on their unemployment fund to bring those costs down and to repay the federal government. Uh, and other issues that we can do to help our local businesses compete by being more cost effective. So those are some of the initiatives that uh, I'll be focusing on with both my colleagues and uh, certainly Senator Brell on the Senate. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, as we know with the budget process, the Assembly and then the Senate will create their budget processes and then have to bring them forward into what they call the one house budget. How confident are you feeling that this is going to be an on-time budget year? <laughs> I have zero confidence that it'll be on time. <laughs> I mean, when I say zero, I mean 0.0 uh, confidence will be on time. So historically, when they publish the legislative budget, uh, I'm sorry, when they publish the legislative calendar, they would have uh, us meeting like almost full-time the last uh, weeks of March with the objective of having a budget on time by April 1st. And then, historically, they had a two-week vacation starting April 1st. When the budget ran late, we'd chew up our vacation. This year, they didn't even put a vacation in. <laughs> which is a legislative acknowledgement by the leadership that we're going to have to be in session in the first two weeks of April. And that's an acknowledgement that there's no way that budget's going to be on time. Yeah, and I'm thinking the budget deadline is going to coincide with Easter this year. Yeah. And so that's probably going to be an added issue. Right. With, with Well, I mean, imagine trying to get people to even be in right. session. And, and you have Passover, which mm -hmm. is both a, uh, a Christian and a Jewish mm -hmm. high holiday, if you will. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, Assemblyman Goodell, I'm sure we'll be talking with you at some point in April or, Mar or maybe May when we finally do have a budget. And we'll, we'll catch up with you then. But I appreciate you coming in and telling us all about what is at least in this package and, and your thoughts on it. Well, thank you so much for letting me join you. And thank you for your hospitality here. Uh, our listeners may not realize that um, the radio station here is now overrun by several young kids <laughs> who are all related to me who are enjoying this uh, live interview. Well, I appreciate them coming in. It's always good to get some younger folks in here. <laughs> so, so Andy, Dell, once again, thanks. Thank you.